Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll go to the 2012 Florida History Fair in Tallahassee. We have a lot of Florida projects. For example, the young ladies I brought with me today, um, one of them did school lunch. Um, as, an, as a revolution in history, and she interviewed um, uh, Agricultural Commissioner Putnam here in Florida um, as one of her sources. He actually called her this morning. Soldiers from all branches of military service trained in Florida during World War II. You can imagine how dazzled they were to see palm trees and women in halter tops and 80 degree weather in February. The founding of Ybor City and much more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Revolution, reaction, and reform in history is the theme of the 2012 Florida History Fair. About 45,000 students in 32 Florida counties compete on the local level under the direction of about 1,000 teachers. The winners of those local competitions converge in Tallahassee each year for the state competition. The winners at the state level of the Florida History Fair travel to the National History Day contest with students from across the country. Christine Sermons teaches at Merritt Brown Middle School in Panama City and has been bringing students to the Florida History Fair for 20 years. It's amazing how they become historians. I think it's one of the most important academic experiences that we have. You know, you hear a lot about STEM nowadays, but um, for example, there was an article from the uh, former president of uh, CEO of uh, IBM in the Wall Street Journal recently, and it talked about how History Fair helped engineers become great engineers because of the great skills that they build for, through this project. You become a researcher, you d use your historical imagination, you understand how to create something, be an innovator, and that's really important in any area, but the History Fair just does a really great job of building those skills. So I've seen it through kids for 20 years. I've got kids that have been, that are alumni of the Florida History Fair who are doing everything you can imagine from being doctors uh, to historians, archivists, um, engineers, you name it, lawyers, you name it. 
they do it and they all started with History Fair, so I think it's really, really important. The Florida History Fair was established in 1980 by the Florida Historical Society. In 1988, the Museum of Florida History and the Florida Department of State began coordinating the contest. Teacher Christine Sermons says that the Florida History Fair attracts students with interests in a variety of subjects. Kids come to me all the time and say, well, you know, history is boring. But after they do History Fair and they learn how history is so fascinating and how they can become the people, then that makes history come alive for them, that it's about real people, warts and all, who make mistakes or just like us, they might have different fashions or live in a different time, but people are people and you can learn from their triumphs and their mistakes and how to make decisions. And so I think one of the really big important things for History Fair is decision-making skills. Students participating in the Florida History Fair compete in a variety of categories, including historical papers, exhibits, websites, performance, and documentaries. Well, it depends on their strengths. I teach middle school, 6th, 7th, and 8th, but I also help kids from the high school who are my alumni who come back and get help. Um, but um, I think that you have to work toward their strengths and build their weaknesses. Every kid in my school does a History Fair project and then it gradually gets narrowed down till you get kids at the state fair and then the national fair. Um, I was a judge at the national fair last year and you see kids from all over the nation so excited about history. So um, it's really great. Um, we, we get shirts, you know, every year, try to build like a team effort. So we steer them toward their strengths. Some of them are really great at exhibits. Some of them are really drama queens and are great at live performances. Some of them are computer geeks. So it just totally depends on what their strengths are and what they want to do. Alec Moyne is an eighth grader at Merritt Brown Middle School in Panama City. Her exhibit is called The Revolution, Reaction, Reform of Children's Nutrition in School Lunch Programs. Um, I explained how that the school lunch programs have dated all the way back to World War II as the men were rejected due to malnutrition issues and they um, established these programs to um, get rid of these programs and for the children to be a better benefit to their country in years coming. Alex says she's getting a lot out of the Florida History Fair process. Um, I'm learning, well, mainly for me, organizational strategies because I'm not the most organized person. And this has taught me you can't lose your stuff or it's not going to come together at the end. Ninth grader Carolyn Jada is a veteran of the Florida History Fair, having made it to the state competition in both sixth and seventh grades, and she's back again this year. I did uh, the revolution that the Civil War caused for Southern women. Um, it's basically about how the Civil War put Southern women to the test. Before that, most Southern women, um, the very poor ones, of course, you know, they worked. Um, however, the richer ones, you know, they were expected to be ladies and sit around, you know, kind of just like, just almost like little porcelain dolls. And the Civil War brought around such a revolution because during the Civil War, their husbands left, um, crop size declined, the economy plummeted, um, there were Yankees on their doorstep and they didn't know what to do and they really had to face some challenges that they didn't have before. Carolyn did a paper last year, but in this year's competition she returned to her preferred category of individual live performance. Um, I portrayed Ellen Call Long. Um, she was the daughter of the third and fifth um, governor of Florida, uh, Richard Keith Call, I do believe is his name. Um, of course we have the street named after him right around the corner. but. Um, I portrayed her and kind of used her to tell the story of other women that 
were pretty important during the war. Um, I chose these other women through their diaries. Um, same thing with Ellen Long. She had a diary that I found on the Florida Memory website and also, um, I think, at the Florida Archives. Carolyn Jada is participating in her fourth Florida History Fair in a row because she finds it to be a valuable educational experience. History Fair is really a rewarding experience because I get to see what other people experience in other times and I get to relate it to my own life and I, I personally have gotten a lot out of it because I, I have a scholarship with uh, the Jack Kent Cook Foundation and they give me so much. I mean, I'm, I'm going to a summer camp at Yale this summer and I would not have made it if it weren't for History Fair. The Florida History Fair attracts students from the Panhandle to South Florida and many points in between. Brandon O'Nickin is a seventh grader from All Angels Academy in Miami. He did an exhibit on Castro's revolution and its impact on Florida. The reason I used to board was because I would be able to put my grandfather's documents on it, which were uh, a passenger list of people coming from Cuba to America, from the Freedom Flight, which was the second stage of immigration here to Miami. I think that it taught me some things about my family that I might have not known, and it brought up like new topics and stuff like that that I might be interested in. And I just find it awesome to be here. 17-year-old Nick Gupta is an 11th grader at Pensacola High School in Escambia County. My project is on the Stonewall Riots of 1969 in New York City. Um, this was essentially the start of gay liberation, and uh, it was a huge event in the history of gays as well as in the history of America, as this was the start when society started accepting gays. Um, I did an exhibit on this project, a senior individual exhibit. So essentially where I started was I started tracking it through what started in the 60s, the social movements, the black civil rights movement, second wave feminism, the hippie movement, and the anti-war movement. And then I went into a little bit of you know what it was like for homosexuals, the homosexual oppression uh, during the 1960s, and then the Stonewall riots themselves, and how gays, this was the time when gays finally stood up for themselves. And then uh, after that, I tracked it through some of the reforms that came through gay liberation, uh, the American Psychiatric Association removing the title of uh, gay, gay as a mental disorder, um, and just greater societal acceptance in general. And then I looked at the reaction with Anita Bryant and AIDS and how that affected the gay liberation movement as a whole. And then um, I finished kind of tracking it through the legacy of Stonewall and uh, how it's important still today. This is Nick Gupta's fifth Florida History Fair. He says that creating and defending projects each year has helped him with many other subjects in school. It helps me in anything I do in all subjects. I mean, really, one of the obvious things is researching. You know, a research paper is a cinch compared to what I do at History Fair and with this. Um, the other thing is History Fair, I've met a lot of people through it. I, you know, learning to interview, learning to be interviewed. I mean, uh, when I was up in D.C., one time I got to meet Juan Williams, Greta Van Sestren, just through History Fair. And uh, had it not been for History Fair, I wouldn't have that great experience. Rachel Hypola and Lee Pritz are both 10th graders at Oxbridge Academy of the Palm Beaches. They created a website called Pablo Picasso, the Revolution of Art for the Florida History Fair. We put a lot of work into it and we wanted to explore every aspect of Pablo Picasso. His art, we wanted to explore the revolutionary things and how he impacted the world and videos and a lot of different things are on our website. We wanted to explore and really get into what Picasso was thinking at the time because he's not alive anymore. We really wanted to get inside his mind and see how he himself was able to create a whole revolution with just a paintbrush. So we were really into that. Talva Jones is a ninth grader at Oxbridge Academy. 
she created a very personal documentary for the Florida History Fair. My subject was a documentary, and it was on a man named Vivian Thomas. He was a hero to me because I have the syndrome, blue baby syndrome, and that is what he cured. So it was a very personal subject to me. I've had many open-heart surgeries, and it's thanks to him that I, along with many others, are here today. Growing up, I've always known a lot about Vivian Thomas, but really doing research, I've learned so much more about him and what he did and what he had to go through. He was a black man. He went through, he was very poor. He went through the Great Depression, and he finally paid his way to college when the stock market crashed. So that was really tough for him. He had to drop out. While students participating in the Florida History Fair do not have to address Florida history themes, many teachers, like Christine Sermons, try to steer their students in that direction. I let them come up with their own ideas. We tend to try to um, promote projects that are linked to Florida. We have a lot of Florida projects. For example, the young ladies I brought with me today, um, one of them did school lunch. Um, as, an, as a revolution in history, and she interviewed um, uh, Agricultural Commissioner Putnam here in Florida um, as one of her sources. He actually called her this morning, uh, right before she went in for her interview. But that is, it was linked, and she did a Florida section to that project. I also try to steer them toward things that, that areas that they personally have a link to. Um, I have a live performance with me today who's actually a high school student and she did um, Ellen Call Long, the um, daughter of the, the uh, governor of Florida during the uh, Civil War and she has kind of made a specialty now of doing some stuff from this, for the Civil War and so that's kind of her area. We actually were looking at a book just published by um, over here that we're looking at that's on Harriet Beecher Stowe's tourist articles after the Civil War and um, I'm looking at some possibilities for that for a project for next year. So we're always looking for ideas. Having students participate in the Florida History Fair for 20 years, Christine Sermons remembers many great projects and papers focusing on Florida history. I've had um, projects on Henry Flagler, I've had projects on the, um, the Cuban cigar industry. I have a live performance bo group of boys uh, on the Cuban cigar industry. We've done, um, we've done the 1918 flu. Last year we did the effect of the 1918 flu and the kids interviewed um, relatives who had letters and all kinds of things. We've done all kinds of things. We've done our local history in Panama City, um, first woman to vote in, in PC. Um, we've, done all, we've done the orange industry, citrus, and how that changed Florida. Just all different sorts of things. Winners of county competitions from throughout the state compete at the Florida History Fair in Tallahassee. The winners of the state competition move forward to the National History Day contest. The theme of the 2012 Florida History Fair is revolution, reaction, and reform in history. But if you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't gonna make it with anyone anyhow. All right. All right. All right.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about exciting upcoming events like our annual meeting and symposium, find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to get our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, The Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features historian Gary Mormino. In 1886, Cuban exile Don Vicente Martinez Ibor, a Spanish patron who had fled Cuba for Key West, founded Ibor City near Tampa. Thousands of Cubans, white and black, Spaniards and later Italians, created one of America's most extraordinary industrial towns. Here, a vibrant Latin culture and literary climate flourished. In the cigar factories in both Ybor City and Key West, lectores, readers, read novels of Cervantes and Victor Hugo to tabaqueros as they rolled cigars. In Ybor, Spaniards created theaters, social centers, and mutual aid societies. Its citizens enjoyed cooperative medical care, with two modern hospitals and several medical clinics offering free services to community members. The conservative American Medical Association condemned, quote, collectivized medicine and blackballed physicians who work for these medical clinics. Ybor City today remains a colorful Latin quarter only a few miles from downtown Tampa. University of South Florida historian Gary Marmino. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Today, St. John's Island is an affluent community in southeast Florida In 1931, a successful guava farmer sold his 20 acres of St. John's Island for $100 an acre. Janie Gould has more. Guavas used to grow wild on the Barrier Island in Indian River County, and some folks grew them commercially. A farmer and primitive Baptist preacher named Melvin Mathis grew guavas, beans, and other crops on 20 acres he owned on John's Island. But in 1931, he sold out. His grandson, Bill Harp, says Mathis had a tough time getting what turned out to be his final truckload of guavas to market. He piled all these guavas up on his truck and he took it to Vero and to the bridge in Vero. There was a hump in the Vero bridge for smaller boats to go over. They didn't have to open up the big turntable of the bridge. Uh, but anyway, he tried to get up over this hump and the, the truck just didn't have the power to get over. And so he tried two and three times and each time he got more angry and more angry until finally he just jumped out and started kicking and swearing at the truck. Something that a minister shouldn't be doing. Because the truck was laden with, what do you think, hundreds of guavas, thousands of guavas, how many? I have no idea, but I think they were about 10 boxes high and this full bed of the truck. And that was cash for the coming year for the family? Yes, that was their income because they had lost their bean crop, and that was the only thing that they had left to sustain them through the year. Did he ever get the truck across that bridge? Yes, finally they took the guavas off of the back of the truck and 
drove the truck over the hump and then manually put the guavas back onto the truck on the other side. Needless to say, he had a, an audience watching, which mortified him. Laughing at him, maybe. Yeah, and not to mention his own sons that had never heard him speak like that, to swear or anything like that. Once he got those guavas to market, and did he then put them on the train? Yes, they were shipped to Pappy Company in uh, Jacksonville, where they made guava jelly commercially. Did you ever find out how much he made per box of guavas? It's something ridiculous, like a dollar and a quarter a box. That's the big square crates. That's not a box. <laughs> it wasn't very much, but to them at that time, it was a lot. So once he got rid of those guavas, he decided that was the end of growing guavas on John's Island. Yes, it was the last straw for him. He had had several other mishaps, and this was the end. And he went that night and talked to my grandmother, Lydia, and said, you know, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to sell the land, and we're going to go west and grow citrus. He sold the land on John's Island to another farmer, do you know? No, he sold it to a man who was going to make a subdivision there. At that time, in the 1930s? Yes, Crumout. I can't remember his first name. But anyway, he sold it to Crumout for $2,000, 20 acres for $2,000. Oh, my goodness. What do you think he would think if he were here today and saw John's Island? Well, I think he's probably doing flip-flops in his grave right now. But at that time, $2,000 was a lot of money. He took it gladly. He bought the land out west of town with that money. Bill Harp has just written a second book based on the lives of his grandparents. It has an interesting title. Scrabbling, which means to dig into the earth with your hands and not expect to get much out of it. Is that kind of the way he lived? Yes, he said that he lived all of his life in depression, so the depressions of the 30s didn't mean anything to him. It had been a dream all my life to write these stories down. I went to the library in Vero to find stuff about my family, and there wasn't, wasn't anything there. So I said, well, this has got to be remedied. I've got to do something about this. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was the top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowing reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. During World War II, the population of Florida exploded as the state became a training ground for all branches of military service. Bill Dudley has the story. Everybody in town was extremely friendly. If you were in uniform and you walked to the corner of Woodland Boulevard, the first car that came by would pick you up and take you in whichever direction you were going. They'd take you out to the base if you were heading out to the base. In 1944, dive bomber pilot Dale Alexander was training at the Naval Air Base in DeLand. And at that time, the population of the servicemen was about 15,000, and I think the population of DeLand was about 15,000. Compared to giant installations like Camp Blanding and Eglin Air Base, DeLand was one of the smaller locations in the state, as was the base at Sarasota, where Airman Rob Paris arrived in June 1942. That was my first trip to Florida, as I recall, and of course, we spent a lot of our free time on the beaches at Lido. We were all pretty young and chasing the girls, as usual, and doing our flying 
in between. Just at any one time, tens of thousands of soldiers. You can imagine how dazzled they were to see palm trees and women in halter tops and 80-degree weather in February. Historian Gary Mormino. And all, all vowed to come back one day, and the most did, as tourists, as transplants, as retirees. With rapid mobilization for war placing tremendous strain on military and civilian infrastructure, Miami Beach became a basic training location for nearly a fourth of the nation's air forces, including Airman Tom Fay and Mike Modica. We got there in December in 1943. We were on South Beach. We were in the Betsy Ross Hotel. They turned all the golf courses into drill fields, and they used the hotels for barracks. And they used to be a delicatessen down the street. They used that for mess halls. I'd never been in Florida before that. That's the first time I ever went there. When I went there, it was quite a contrast after coming from Boston. And, of course, when we landed in Florida, it was bright and sunny, and everybody had suntans, and we were in a olive drab uniforms, and we looked sort of had quite a pallor. Someone came up with the idea of using these grand resort hotels in Miami Beach, but also St. Petersburg and Daytona and other places as barracks. And uh, there's a famous story, a congressman apparently said, well, you can't have ordinary uh, privates living in a resort hotel. And Under Secretary of War Patterson said, no hotel is too good for the American soldier. Apparently the Air Force had taken over most of the hotels on Collins Avenue, up to, well, maybe the beyond Lincoln Avenue, I'm not sure. Like I was in what they call the Ponciana Hotel. In the evenings, there were Miami nightclubs and USO dances at the Million Dollar Pier. Monica, who later flew a score of missions as a B-17 ball turret gunner, recalls jungle training in the woods of Opalaka and attending classes in local movie theaters. We marched right through the streets and sang all our songs. People fast asleep. And, you know, we'd be up there by all these 7 o'clock in the morning singing away, going to the golf courses. And I don't remember people on the golf course playing golf. I, I'm not too sure whether they were open or whether we took them over. In fact, the state's tourist industry had taken a hit at the start of the war, then rebounded. Not all Americans were sure this was a good thing. Some saw a Florida vacation as a good way to ease wartime stress, but others called for fewer tuxedos and more overalls. Florida's image really took a beating during World War II. The great virtues of war, patriotism, sacrifice, commitment, collide with the, the values associated with Florida. Leisure, mobility, freedom, pleasure. This was especially true with the great resorts in Florida. The racetracks and dog tracks operated for most of the war. Many Americans are concerned, should you be having fun in Florida while there's a war going on? What they often did was campaigns such as, even workers need a furlough too. But even when tourism was down, most Floridians remained positive about the GI's presence in their midst. Floridians opened their arms to servicemen, for the most part. The war brought prosperity to many places, servicemen coming to town on a Saturday night, spent money. Floridians were grateful to have military bases nearby. Everybody was behind everybody. Everybody was helping each other. You'd walk down the street and everybody on the street would speak to you. If you went to a bar and you tried to buy a drink, it was impossible. The bars always bought drinks for you. It was wonderful. These people just accepted the sailors and treated us like family, really. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. 
please join us again next week right here. Until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.